It's a day I'll never forget. I may get old one day. What's going to happen? And I may lose my memory. But Monday, September 19th, 2005, is a day that would truly change the way I viewed music and rock and roll. It was a hot day for that time of year in Toronto, Ontario, Canada. I'd been there all weekend with my best friend. It was a weekend of concerts, but nothing, and I mean nothing, prepared me for the experience I would have that Monday night. <clears throat> we arrived at the venue early. We got a street dog across the street from the then ACC, or Air Canada Centre, where the Toronto Maple Leafs play. Clouds had just started to roll in, and the humidity that night was ridiculous. We entered the venue to the sound of Eddie Vedder and Sleater Kinney doing an acoustic version of Porch. I walk in, and all I hear is, What the is this world running to you didn't? Leave a message, at least I could have heard your voice one last time. I freaked out. I ran to my seat. I found where it was, and I sat down. Luckily for me, though, that's the way that Pearl Jam had started the concerts. They start with a little intro, an acoustic intro, with the opening band, and then the opening band comes on and does their set. So I still had time to see my favorite band. But they weren't my favorite band at that time. It wouldn't be until this night that I truly, truly fell in love with Pearl Jam. I couldn't wait to experience a band that I had truly grown up with live. This was something that I was anticipating, but then it happened. The lights dim and the soft, subtle guitar intro to release Calm the crowd. You could hear a pin drop. And then the unexpected hum of vocals. Take the crowd as the lyrics start to be sung. I see the world. I feel the chill. Which way to go? Windowsill From those first notes To those first lyrics being sung I'm not lying when I say My life opened up to a whole new world Of what music meant The passion these men still had For their craft was infectious There's no way you can walk away From a Pearl Jam concert and be disappointed I mean, I was in Toronto for the Starstock concert in 2001 when ACDC, the Rolling Stones, Rush, the Flaming Lips, Sam Roberts, um, who else was there? So many bands took the stage and they could still not command a crowd the way Pearl Jam did that night in 2005. So my friends, as the song release goes, Al... Open up, release me, and welcome to week eight of Nerd Babble, where I get musical and discuss the one 
and only Pearl Jam. In the late 80s, music was going through another change. The state of Washington seemed to have gathered a following for a new sound, combining the likes of both fast-paced genres of punk rock and heavy metal. There was a specific independent record label called Sub Pop in Seattle, which had dubbed this type of music grunge and was encouraging the media to describe this music as grunge also. By the early 90s, this type of music had cultivated all over. California was developing its own grunge scene, and so was Australia. The grunge scene really broke big in the early to mid-90s due to releases such as Nirvana's Nevermind, Soundgarden, Sound, uh, sorry, Soundgarden's Bad Motorfinger, Alice in Chains' Dirt, Stone Temple Pilots' Core, and lastly, Pearl Jam's 10. But before all that success, all these bands had to start somewhere. And Pearl Jam began with a band called Mother Love Bone. Mother Love Bone was a growing grunge band in the late 80s. Andrew Wood was the vocalist, and also the reason Mother Love Bone wouldn't develop into the band they could have. Unfortunately, due to Wood's addiction to heroin, his girlfriend found him in a comatose state on March 6th, 1990. On March 19th, it was announced that would be taken off life support. He died mere hours later. Andrew Wood's death is important to Pearl Jam's development because Stone Gossard, who was Pearl Jam's guitarist, and Jeff Ament, who was Pearl Jam's bassist, were founding members of Mother Love Bone and were deeply, deeply impacted by the loss of Andy Wood. After Wood's death, Stone was the only one who really continued to write music, basically doing it independently, and Jeff had decided to take some time off from the scene. The time off from the scene didn't last long, though, as Stone and fellow guitarist Mike McCready were looking for a new band to jam with, and uh, were, yeah, they were looking for a new band to jam with, and when beginning, Mike had mentioned that they should get a bassist, and who better than Jeff? Stone was a little, little hesitant. Both him and Jeff had openly admitted that. They weren't too sure of each other in the early days. Stone openly admits that he was worried Jeff would one day haul off and hit him. They ended up getting drummer Matt Cameron to join them and ended up cutting a little little demo without vocals. They decided that they would send this demo around and see if they could grab a singer. Unfortunately, because of everyone knowing that Jeff and Stone had been a part of Mother Love Bone, a lot of vocals came back with the same attitude and sound that Andrew Wood had had, and it wasn't what they were looking for. Now, there's a lot of back story to this next story, and there's a lot of kind of open-endedness. Nobody's really sure how this actually took place. But Jack Irons, who becomes a drummer for Pearl Jam eventually, and who is also a drummer for the Red Hot Chili Peppers, is in California. And it's said that Stone and Jeff gave him a tape of the demo, which Jack then gave to Mr. Eddie Vedder, who was living out in L.A. at the time. Um, sorry. Yeah. 
is yeah. Anyways, fact of the matter is, is that no matter who tells the story, whether it's Jeff or Stone, it always ends up that maybe Jeff was missing, maybe Stone was missing, maybe they did it together. Fact of the matter is, is that Jack Irons ended up getting this tape to Mr. Eddie Vedder. The tape was brought back to McCready, Gossard, and Ament, and all three were surprised with what they were hearing. It was the first time that a vocalist was laying vocals on their tracks, and it didn't sound like Andy Wood. It wasn't long before the boy from Chicago, Eddie Vedder, was meeting the men who would become his bandmates and his friends. The band, consisting of Eddie Vedder on vocals, Stone Gossard and Mike McCready on guitar, Jeff Ament on bass, and at the time, drummer Dave Cruzen, had originally named themselves Mookie Blaylock after the NBA point guard who played with the Nets, the Hawks, and the Golden State Warriors. Unfortunately, due to legalities, the band chose the words Pearl Jam separately. They chose Jam after seeing Neil Young perform and saying they enjoyed his Jam Session style. So, in 1991, Pearl Jam decided to step into the recording studio. However, at the same time, most members of Pearl Jam were also in the room next to them recording with Chris Cornell for the band we know now as Temple of the Dog. At that point, when it came to recording the single Hunger Strike, Cornell couldn't find the right range for the chorus of I'm going hungry. Vetter was asked to join them, figuring he could hit the range Chris had been looking for. The first ever professional recording that you will hear of Eddie Vedder is him on Temple of the Dog's Hunger Strike. So after Temple of the Dog had finished recording, Pearl Jam went into the studio to record their first album, 10. The big mistake with this one is everyone thinks it's named 10 because there are 10 tracks on the album. It's wrong. There are 11 tracks on the album, releases the last track, and it is named 10 to honor their original name, Mookie Blaylock. 10 is the number Mookie wore during his career. On August 27th, 1991, the world was given the album 10 to great success. With major hits like Jeremy, Even Flow, and Alive, the album took off right away. With those three tracks grabbing their audience, fans fell in love with the other side of Pearl Jam by listening to the other gems on the album, such as Black, Oceans, Porch, and The Great Finisher. Release. <clears throat> Eddie Vedder used to stay up and watch David Letterman. And when Pearl Jam came out with 10, every night Dave would sing Black at the end of the show or midway through the show. And he would point to Eddie and he would get the crowd to go, do, 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 do. Because that's the way the song Black ends. He didn't stop doing this until Eddie actually came on uh, and performed Black with the Letterman Band. It wasn't even with Pearl Jam the first time. It was with the Letterman Band. Uh, He came on and he did a little rendition of Black just so Dave, who he loved, uh, would stop bugging him. So, with the role that they were on and the success of 10, the band was asked to do what all grunge bands were doing at the time, an MTV Unplugged. So, on March 16th, 
1992, Pearl Jam unplugged and did an amazing acoustic set. Opening with Oceans and Vetter dubbing it a love song for a surfboard, Vetter then asking what's next, they bust into my opinion the best version of Love and State of State of Love and Trust. The audience is so involved and know the tracks like they've been listening to it for more than a year. But the highlight has to be black. As soon as the intro comes in, the crowd goes nuts. You hear the love for this band just from that first strum of the chord, the first pick of the chord. You hear it. It's amazing. Plus, Eddie's vocals are so passionate. He dives deep into everything he sings with this one. It's beautiful. If you have a chance, check it out. Black Pearl Jam. MTV Unplugged. If you're disappointed, yeah, you can blame me. I also forgot to mention, if you've heard the first single, Jeremy, the intro is done by a 12-string bass. You heard me right. A bass, not a guitar. A bass, 12-string bass. J.P. Met got really into playing with more strings and different tunings at this point and ended up playing the opening riff for Jeremy. For someone like me who plays bass, not well, but I play, Jeff A. Mench is a god to me. He's an amazing bassist. Uh, <laughs> there's an awesome meme out there, and it's Eddie Vedder standing to the side of Jeff A. Mench, and Jeff's jumping in the air with his bass, and it says, even lead singers need somebody to look up to. <laughs> and... Uh, I always kind of laugh about that because a friend of mine says, uh, my friend Billy has no love for Pearl Jam, so him and I always get into discussions about it, but he, uh, he, he always tells me Eddie Vedder sucks and he'll give, but he gives a flying beep about their bassist. Uh, so Billy, if you listen to this one, that one's for you, buddy. In 1993, Pearl Jam followed up 10 with the album Versus. The band had switched drummers, uh, had switched drummer for this album and introduced Dave Abruzzesi. The album was, was released on October 19th, 1993. The band had decided to scale back any promotions for Versus, including any videos for any of the singles. Upon its release, Versus sold the most copies in its first week of a release compared to any other album at any other time. It held this record for five years. The album has been certified platinum seven times over. Not surprising with singles such as Go, Animal, Dissident, and the biggest, Daughter. Even if you're not a Pearl Jam fan, chances are you've heard Daughter. Uh, but again, it's tracks like Glorified G, so glorified version of a pellet gun. It's amazing because it's actually about their drummer Dave bringing a gun to a practice one time. And Eddie and the boys, Eddie and Stone just being so surprised that he would do this. Why would you need it when we were going to jam or record, right? There's also Rearview Mirror, and it is a fan's favorite. Uh, people wait to hear that tune at the concerts. 
But the sparkle on this album, and I'm sure most of you will agree, is Elderly Woman Behind the Counter in a Small Town. Long title for a beautiful track. And I'm an odd man out when I say this, uh, but I really dig the track called Rats. It's um, it's a mock on uh, human existence and the way we live as a whole. It's uh, really good. It has a really kind of political stand behind it. Uh, it's just a really great track. Really great track. With that... On November 22nd, 1994, the th- third album, Vitology, was released. The album was written while the band was on their f- tour for Verses. Vetter took over quite a bit of the writing for this album, which at the time spooked Stone because he was the writer. The album was their most experimental for the time, with Vetter and Gossard both writing, and you can hear the differences between them. With tracks such as Nothing Man... And the hit Better Man, the band took on a softer side. But in comparison, you had that grunge feel with tracks such as Tremor Christ, Spin the Black Circle, and Satan's Bed. We're also given a crazy accordion song called Bugs. Again, I'm an odd man out when I say I love this tune. Uh, There's also the incredible fan love called Corduroy. Uh, again, fans wait for this song to be played at concerts. Uh, don't blame them. Great song. The first three Pearl Jam albums uh, really got the fans into it and had kept that grunge feel that they were known for. It wasn't until the fourth album, uh, which was received by... Fans and critics alike to mixed reviews. No Code came out on August 27th, 1996. This was by far the band's most experimental, if we could even call it that. I think the problem with No Code was that the band was really strained from the original grunge sound at the time, or the original grunge form. Also, this was the first album with another new drummer, Jack Irons, who I had mentioned was the drummer for the Red Hot Chili Peppers. But this album, I feel, is underrated. The album features uh, the first time ever someone else aside from Vetter did leave vocals. Uh, for this album, Stone wrote a song called Mankind, which he sings on. I love it. You hear it and you know it's not Eddie, but the track just gets you. I've, I've gotten into arguments with other Pearl Jam fans about this because some people just don't like it but it's just so great and it was really cool to hear somebody else aside from eddie singing a pearl jam song from present tense to hail hail to who you are to off he goes to the look at the 90s grunge with the track like habit where vetter says speaking of a child from the 90s all these tracks are amazing They all deal with something, they all have something personal or some view of it that's really, really good. We even got a track called I'm Open, which was Vetter's attempt and success, I find, with a spoken word. It's uh, really deep and it shows you where Vetter's mind was at at the time. There's so many more, like Red Mosquito, about the devil showing up and kind of making sure you know he's there. So again, no code, very underrated. Even if it did debut at number one, 
it still is just lost uh, amongst, you know, the others, which I, I understand and I get. But if you get the chance, you need to sit down and really zone in on this album because, wow. So, February 3rd, 1998. This is the album that if you're my age, uh, is the album that you'll probably probably really stands out to you uh, for the time. The album is called Yield. It's the fifth studio album by Pearl Jam. After a short promotional tour for No Code, the band took most of 1997 off and worked on their upcoming album, which would become Yield. After having not released a video in years, the band returned with an animated video for the single Do the Evolution, which was animated by Spawn creator and writer Todd McFarlane. So I say single. Do the Evolution wasn't really put out as a single except for the video itself. But you ask most people and they will tell you that it's Do the Evolution is that video that they did for it and just... You know, it doesn't even show you Pearl Jam. It's just an animated video that a lot of people get mistaken now. Uh, They forget that it's called Do the Evolution. And it's trying to show the evolution of what we've gone through and how maybe sometimes we stay where we are or we might go the wrong way. It's very political because it's Todd McFarlane. Um, Let's be honest now. That's him. That's the way it is. Um but yeah, it, it, there's just so much behind it that uh, if you get a chance, watch the video. It's perfect. The album was hailed as a return to the band's roots. Uh, Given to Fly and Wishlist were produced as the singles for this album, with uh, Due to the Evolution being released as a video, but not as a staple single, single like I said. Wishlist is by far one of the best songs Pearl Jam has ever written, in my opinion. But this album has the likes of Brain of Jay and Faithful and No Light and In Hiding. It it doesn't end. It you can well for me again, my favorite band, I can look at a Pearl Jam album and go, that's good, that's good, that's good, that's good because of this. That's my opinion, right? Because <clears throat> again, my favorite band. It was the return of Pearl Jam's grunge and a return to the band working more collectively. After the experimental stuff that they went through with No Code, it was kind of a nice backing to go back to what everybody was used to, which is what Yield did. With the success of Yield, it didn't take long for Pearl Jam to get back into the studio to record another album. Binaural was released on May 16, 2000. After a long tour for Yield, the band took uh, the end of 1999 off and started writing for their upcoming album. Binaural had some hindrances to get through before the album was put together. Eddie Vedder openly admitted to having writer's block during this time, while guitarist Mike McCready had taken time off to go to rehab for his addiction to prescription drugs. Also with that, drummer Jack Irons left the band before the tour for Yield and was replaced by Soundgarden drummer Matt Cameron. If you wanted anybody, Matt Cameron's the man to get from those grunge drummers. The band's incredible. I... Out of the grunge drummers at the time, I don't care who you are, Matt Cameron, the best. Bah, 
he's also the drummer that was on uh, Temple of the Dog too. So again, you see how all these guys got back together, right? They got back together to form one amazing super grunge band, which is Pearl Jam. But I digress. Binaural received positive reviews upon its release and debuted at number two. This was again an experimental album with all the changes going on within the band itself. Nothing as it seems and light years were the singles from the album. But like the other albums, there's so many hidden gems within, such as Evacuation or Vetter's ukulele-driven song, Soon Forget. I often feel like No Code and Binaural should have been released back-to-back and then Yield should have came out. Or Yield should have been released before No Code and then it should have... And then No Code and Binaural. However, I think that these two albums kind of go together. No Code and Binaural should be listened to -to back-to-back. They kind of follow each other. They have the same kind of feel to them. Uh, They have a lot of softer sides of Pearl Jam compared to the heavy stuff which shows up on, you know, Yield or Vitology or Versus or Ten. So at this point in the band's career, it had become evident that some changes amongst members were starting to change. The band has said that during the time of the recording for their next album, Riot Act, it was the closest they had ever felt to breaking up. Riot Act was released on November 12th, 2002. After the release of Binaural, the band took the entire 2001 year off. They came back in early 2002 to start recording and writing for Riot Act. Again, labeled as experimental, there were so many genres featured on this album. For example, the folk-driven Thumbing My Way, which Vetter has expressed is about hitchhiking your way through a breakup. I Am Mine was a major single released on this album. It's a great tune and has the message of remembering yourself and remembering that you know the best line in that song is I know I was born and I know that I'll die. The in-between is mine because I am mine. It's a great thing to just remember that you're yourself and you should always be yourself. Uh, Oscar Wilde himself said it. He said... Uh, you know, always be yourself because everybody else is taken. And I feel like I Am Mine is exactly that same kind of message behind it. There's also the single Love Boat Captain. Uh, It features one of the lines of Lost Nine Friends Will Never Know Two Years Ago Today. This was in reference to nine fans being mortally injured. Or, yeah, mortally Nine fans passed away at a Pearl Jam concert at the 2000 Rockslide Festival. So Vetter included that in the song Love Boat Captain. Uh, it's also a quote on the Beatles, All You Need Is Love. Because the chorus for Love Boat Captain goes, I know it's already been sung, but all you need is love. That's the way it goes. And uh, yeah, that line is, Lost nine friends will never know. Two years ago today. Love Boat Captain is a beautiful song. And Riot Act is the first album that introduced the organist Boom Gasper, who had been working with Eddie 
in the year 2001 uh, in Hawaii. Eddie had gone out there and started working on some solo stuff and some ukulele stuff and met up with this gentleman named Boom Gasper who became uh, Pro Jam's organist. He comes and goes every once in a while. When I saw them, uh, he was there. And it's so funny because when they introduce Boom, fans go, Boom! And it sounds like they're booing the poor guy. And you see him and he just stands there, big smile and he waves and you think that they're booing him. But it's because of the, the hold on the O. But they're actually saying his name and how much they love him. And he just giggles. He's this smaller Samoan man, I want to say. He, he's long, long white beard. Just He looks like he'd be uh, just a great guy to hang out with, in my opinion. That's the way I feel, feel about it. But at this point, having released albums two years apart, back to back to back to back to back, the band at this point took four years off after the release of Riot Act and didn't follow it up until May 2nd, 2006, when the band released their self-titled album, or sometimes called Avocado, because of the cover. The music on the record was pr proclaimed as a return to the band's roots with an emphasis on up-tempo songs with an aggressive sound. The song lyrics are mostly told from the point of view of a character and deal with the socio-political issues in the United States during that period, such as the War on Terror. Pearl Jam was critically well-received as a commercial success debuting at number two on the Billboard 200 chart and eventually outselling the band's previous, rele previous release, Riot Act. The album also produced three singles, Worldwide Suicide, Life Wasted, and gone, which were moderately successful. Inside Job is also a beautiful track on this, and so is Marker in the Sand. Singles are the ones that bring you in, but they're rarely the best tracks on an album. In my opinion, of course. It'll also be another three years before Pearl Jam released their next album, uh, titled Backspacer. Is released on September 20th, 2009, and was praised by critics and fans alike. Backspace was the first Pearl Jam album to reach number one on the Billboard 200 since No Code had done it in 1996, with singles such as The Fixer, which is actually a bonus track, so it's funny that it became a single. Uh, Got Some Slash Just Breathe is the main single off that album. There was a really cool video that was filmed for it, and it's... Uh, it was actually done on the Letterman show. It's them. Uh, it's the band playing "Just Breathe" live. It's really, really well done. Very, 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 very good. But we can't forget songs like "Johnny Guitar." The the riff in that tune, Whew, so so good. Um, "Speed of Sound" is good. "Gonna See My Friend." None. No. Song should be overlooked on any album. I am the biggest believer that if you're going to listen to something, you listen to it from beginning to end. If you're putting an album on, you're putting the album on. You should listen to it from track one to track whatever. It doesn't matter how many tracks there are. You listen to it from beginning to end. That's my opinion. That's the way it should be. That's the way they wrote it. That's the way it's intended to be listened to. These whole skip and fast forward and all that, those buttons should not exist. 
Lightning Bolt, was the next studio album to be released. It was released on October 11th, 2013, and was written and recorded during 2011 to 2013. I feel like Lightning Bolt was the album... The, yeah, the album Lightning Bolt is the greatest representation of what Pearl Jam was and what they are still becoming at that time. Um, with the beginning of the album starting with Gateway and Mind Your Manners, you're almost taken back to the early days. You almost get the feel of verses or Vitology. And it doesn't stop. Because as the album progresses, you can hear the development of the band. By the time the self-titled track Lightning Bolt comes on, your adrenaline should be running and you should be rocking out. But the further the album gets, the more you realize you should probably grab a drink or a joint and relax with the band. As Let the Record Play the Song ends... We dive into a full-out rock version of Vedder's Sleeping By Myself, which was featured on his ukulele album. Yellow Moon follows, and just sends you into a deep state of relaxation. And next thing you know, you're flying through future days, thinking about the days to come. Amazing, exceptional album. Do not, I will repeat this, do not overlook it. Please. You just get lost in some of these albums. And, and that's why I say listen to them from beginning to end. So many people forget that each one of these songs is a meaning to the people who write them. And it may not catch you at first, but listen to it. There are so many albums that I've gone back and listened to as I've gotten older uh, that I couldn't get into when I was younger. But I've kept them because I figured at some point they might have that feeling. Um, the self-titled Pearl Jam album was like that for me. I overlooked it when it first came out, but as I get older, the more and more I listen to it, the more I find gems. Binaural was the same for me. Um, music hits you on different levels, different ways as you get older. And if you love music the way I do, or the way um, so many others do, Keep those albums around that you may not think mean something to you now. Because maybe a day, maybe a week, maybe five years from now, that album might jump out at you and say like, hey man, listen to me. I got something for you this time. Everything should be listened to carefully. Music goes so much further than just a bunch of guys with instruments. Last year, we got the 11th studio album called Gigaton. The album was released on March 27th, 2020. The first single that was released was Dance of the Clairvoyance. It was received to mixed reviews because of the synth 80 sound of the track, only to find out later that it truly is Matt Cameron hammering on those heavy beats with an actual drum. It is so damn cool. Also, Jeff Ament played the organ on this, and Stone played bass. It's crazy. They all kind of jumped around with their instruments, gave us a little something different. And I think because of the, the, that first sound that you hear, it's, it, it's 
the the beach and the temple is so far from anything anything that we've heard from Pearl Jam that people were really not expecting it. But then you learn that Matt's actually doing these beats with the drums and it's not some digital box that he's playing with. It's him actually playing these beats. And to find out that it's Stone laying down this amazing, beautiful bass line on this track is so different than anything I expected. This is, And again, this is why if you love a band or you love music and you love what's going on on the album, check out the way it was recorded. Check out who was playing what why they were playing it, what the idea was behind it. It's If you love something and you have a passion for it, find out more about it. It's so, so great in my opinion. Super Blood Wolf Moon was next to be released as a single, followed by Quick Escape and Retrograde. The song 7 O'Clock is a real treat on this album. It was recorded in different parts and then put together and Vetter went back and laid some tracks over top of it, some vocals over top of it. Uh, the guys say that it was a, a weird song uh, when they finally got to listen to the whole thing and hear it and how it had all been put together and them being able to actually sit down and play it. it they said it was a, a really cool experience to see a song come together like 7 O'Clock did. Buckle Up is a track that's showing that Stone still has the ability to write lyrics and guitar riffs and still kill it the way he always has. I love this track. It's so good. Buckle up. Uh, I think when I first listened to it, when I first listened to Gigaton, uh, I was going through it and I got near the end and Buckle Up is track nine, I believe. And, uh, as soon as I heard it, I said, man, this has to be a Stone song. Sure enough, go back and listen to it and check out who wrote the credits, the writing credits, and yeah, it's Stone, full-out Stone Gossard. He writes so well, and I think he, he should really host a how-to guitar or something. I think it'd be really fun, but that's besides the point. There's also Eddie um, showing he can do a solo acoustic song in one take, nonetheless, which is Comes and Then Goes. This is a hitter of emotion, this song. If you ever want to feel, you know, deeply moved by music, I would honestly suggest Comes Then Goes. Personally, the tour for this album had to be postponed because of COVID, which, in my opinion, kind of put a halt to the success of the album. It scored big, and uh, fans were happy with it. Uh, even with the the strange single of Dance of the Clairvoyance that came out, the fans still liked it. Critics received it well. I just think that it would have had a bigger success rate if they had toured for it and the fans were able to hear live versions of these songs and see the passion that the boys had for these songs i think it would have probably brought in uh, a bigger following or maybe even a new following with uh yeah a new following for a new album for a new generation i think it might have pulled more people in but unfortunately with you know us dealing with this silly covid still there's also a great compilation album 
compilation album released on November 11th, 2003. It's entitled Lost Dogs because most of the tracks that appear on this album are lost. They're B-sides or tracks that had been scrapped from previous albums, stuff that had been written that they didn't think would happen. So many reasons why these were left out. But there's some awesome covers on there like Leaving Here or, uh, you know, Last Kiss, which uh, tons of fans know. There's uh, also a song called Black and Red and Yellow, which uh, a couple of years ago, the Pearl Jam was playing a show at Wrigley Field, uh, which was recorded live, and you can actually get a video of it. It's called Let's Play 2. You can get a video, you can buy the album, but uh, (laughs) D. Rodman, Mr. Dennis Rodman, comes out and actually sings uh, Black and Red and Yellow with him. Well, he does a little intro, but it's cool the way it starts off. It's a a very good song. Uh, Fatal's on this, which is awesome. There's, uh, I like to call it the... The surfer, uh, the surfer mix. Uh, there's a couple of songs midway through the first album because it's a double album. Uh, one's called Grammy Out of Control and the other one's called The Well Song. And even leaving here, the cover could be put into these. But I feel like these songs should be listened to when you're on the beach or when you're cutting out some wakes. Uh, it's just a really, really cool album. There's also a hidden track on it called 042002. Uh, it can be found at 604 on the B-Girl track. The song is actually dedicated to Allison Chain's lead singer, Lane Staley, who was found dead on April 20th, 2002. So the song goes out to him. And this, ladies and gentlemen, this album is the only album where you can find a studio-recorded version of the hit Yellow Leadbetter. So yeah, that, that great song that everybody loves by Pearl Jam, that, how it got out there, I don't even know. Maybe it was just a single for Lost Dogs and people fell in love with it. And it's also a song that they end a lot of their their concerts with, is Yellow Leadbetter, and that, that's probably how it got the hype. But if you want to listen to it, and it's pure recorded loveliness you have to get lost dogs and that's where you'll find it so with all of this if you're sitting there and asking well what's josh's favorite album truthfully i can't really say i used to always say yield but having gotten older it's now a toss-up between riot act and yield so Yield was the first true P Pearl Jam album I, I fell in love with. And Riot Act was the album I found when I needed it. So both hold a special place. And if you're going to ask me what my favorite song is, well, again, toss-up. Wishlist is the song that really hooked me on Pearl Jam, and it appears on Yield. Again, it was one of the singles. I wish I was a neutron bomb for once I could go off. I wish I was the verb to trust and never let you down. Ah, wish list. It's so pretty. Uh, I saw them play it live. It That had so much meaning to me when I saw it uh, live when I saw them in concert. And the other track is uh, the single off of Riot Act called Thumbing My Way. Vetter describes it as a hitchhike through a heartache. 
I think it's just, uh, or he calls it a hitchhike through a breakup, sorry. I think it's truly just a song dealing with any type of lost. Um, the chorus says, I'm thumbing my way back to heaven. There's no wrong or right, but I'm sure there's good and bad. There's so many really, really good lyrics in this. And it's, I guess this one hits me too, because I'm I'm such a fan of folk music that this has a very folk story feel to it. You can almost imagine somebody hitchhiking when you hear this and looking for someone to pick them up to save them from the loss they've just received. It's so bloody well written that yeah oh such such good tracks such good tracks and in case you don't know all Pearl Jam albums are released a week or a month before on vinyl first with the exception of Backspacer if you find a vinyl copy of Backspacer you are getting a bootleg somebody has made that because it's the only album that was never released on vinyl by Pearl Jam. I know this. I stand by it because I own all of them on vinyl. I had to get reissues of Binaural and No Code for their 20th anniversaries because they had gone out of print, but every single one, including Lost Dogs, I own a bunch of the live ones, like Live on Two Legs, or I also own Let's Play 2. Uh, yeah, they're all on vinyl except Backspacer. So again, if you find Backspacer on vinyl, it, somebody has made it. It's a bootlegged copy that was made on vinyl. Not there's anything wrong with that, but it's not an official press. We'll say that. There's so much more to mention. All I've done is given you kind of a background on the band and some details on the albums. But there's also like the 10 Fan Club which offers so many great things to the fans. First Gibbs on tickets, singles only released to the 10 fan club members, Christmas cards, so much that you can experience from them. Uh, there's also the ability to find a copy of the concert that you've been to. Every show is recorded at the venue and released on the Pearl Jam website for a digital download. It's usually 10 bucks. Uh, I feel that this band does just as much for the fans as the fans do for them. I hope with this babble I may have been able to convert some people into Pearl Jam fans. If not, I want to thank you for listening to my rant and rave and babble about my favorite band, Pearl Jam. Next week, I'm going to jump back into some comics. If you guys would, I'd appreciate it if you come take a walk with me on an adventure through a little place called Fable Town, an invisible neighborhood hidden in magic in the heart of New York, where your favorite nursery rhymes and fairy tales have taken up residence. My friends, come babble with me next Sunday about Bill Bill Willingham's epic comic adventure called Fables. Until then... My babblers, babble on.